Radio Derb is on the air. That was a fife and drum rendering of Haydn's Derbyshire March Number no. 2. And this is, of course, your objectively genial host, John Derbyshire, with commentary on the news from an unillusioned point of view. Wednesday this week was July 12th, a memorable date for historical, political and personal reasons. Historical. The unification of England under King Athelstan in AD 927. Political. The Battle of Ochrim in 1691, ending the Jacobite cause in Ireland. Last time I checked, The 12th was still a public holiday in Northern Ireland, celebrated with gusto by the Protestants of that province. On that basis, I'll call it political, although you could argue it's really historical. And, Jacobite listeners, don't worry. I shall spare you the triumphalist Ulster music this year. Personal. My father was born on the 12th, 124 years ago. He left us 85 years later and now exists only in the memories of myself, my sister and a dwindling number of middle-aged and elderly relatives and acquaintances. Rest in peace, Dad. And yes, you were right. England was going to the dogs. Now it's gone and the dogs are pouring in from the third world to chew on the bones. King Athelstan would have known what to do, but he left us long before you did. Poor old England. As an American now, a real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, I'll do what I can to stop the USA from falling into the same pit. Here's one of the things I can do. I can call out the gross, staggering stupidity of our foreign policy this past 32 years. What brings that to mind is the NATO summit that concluded in Lithuania earlier this week. Radio Derb's position on NATO has been often stated, but I'll state it again for clarity. It's a good idea for small, stable countries to unite in military alliance against a larger, unstable and belligerent neighbour. The nations of Western Europe are justified in thus uniting for mutual assistance against possible misbehaviour by Russia. Together, they have three times Russia's population, many times Russia's wealth, and two, count them, two nuclear powers. It makes sense. That is Europe's business, though. There is no reason for the USA 
to be in NATO. When the Warsaw Pact was dissolved in 1991, we should have left NATO with all possible speed. Instead, we spent this past 32 years aggressively promoting NATO as a key instrument of American global hegemony. Even though we knew perfectly well that Russians, all Russians, not just Putinists, nurse a deep collective neurosis about NATO. Longish quote. Opposition to NATO expansion was, in a quote, the one constant in what we have heard from all Russian interlocutors. And in a quote, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow, Thomas R. Pickering, reported to Washington 30 years ago. Every leader in the Kremlin since Gorbachev and every Russian foreign policy official since the end of the Cold War has strenuously objected, publicly as well as in private to Western diplomats, to NATO expansion, first into the former Soviet satellite states and then into former Soviet republics. The entire Russian political class, including liberal westernizers and democratic reformers, has steadily echoed the same. After Putin insisted at the 2007 Munich Security Conference that NATO's expansion plans were unrelated to in a quote, ensuring security in Europe, end in a quote, but rather represented, in a quote, a serious provocation, end in a quote, Gorbachev reminded the West that, in a quote, for us Russians, by the way, Putin wasn't saying anything new. End in a quote, end quote. I took that long quote from an essay in the June issue of Harper's Magazine, title, Why Are We in Ukraine? The authors are Benjamin Schwartz, editor of World Policy Journal, and Christopher Lane, professor of international affairs at Texas A&M. The essay is long, almost 8,700 words, which is seven or eight times the length of a broadsheet newspaper op-ed. But it's well worth your time. Schwartz and Lane give a clear, detailed account of how our foreign policy establishment, having won the Cold War, went ahead and methodically recreated it. Where Russia is concerned, we are now back in 1963, but with a Russia even less stable, more politically primitive and way more corrupt than it was under Khrushchev, b a USA that is militarily overstretched with difficulty recruiting from a dwindling and increasingly disillusioned 
pool of young adults, while stocks of essential military supplies are being drawn down for Ukraine. And C, China, armed to the teeth and a far more populous, far more commercially potent power than Russia, watching and calculating. The answer to the question in this essay's title, Why Are We in Ukraine?, is, of course, that we are in Ukraine because we are in NATO. The authors might as well have titled it, Why Are We in NATO?, a question I have been asking for years. Here I was back in June of 2020. Quote, Where are our troops? Let's see. 55,000 of them are in Japan. I guess so that we won't be caught out by another surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. 26,000 are in South Korea, protecting that nation from North Korea, which has half the South's population and one-fiftieth its GDP. Hold the line there, guys. Where else are they? Well, there's 35,000 in Germany at battle stations there waiting for the Red Army to come storming through the Fulda Gap. We also have 12,000 in Italy. You know, just in case Mussolini stages a comeback. You can't be too careful. End quote. The numbers haven't changed much since I said that three years ago. As of the 2022 numbers, our troops in Japan are down from 55 to 54,000. In South Korea, from 26 to 25,000. Germany and Italy are about the same. So hey, we're still secure against another Pearl Harbor or a new Mussolini. Not that the old Mussolini had any aggressive intentions against our territory, as far as I can recall. We're still in NATO, and, according to our president, speaking at a presser in Finland on Thursday, quote, I'm saying, as sure as anything could possibly be said about American foreign policy, we will stay connected to NATO, end quote. So I guess we'll still be able to launch NATO operations like the one in 2011 against Libya, the mission that killed Colonel Gaddafi and turned his country from a stable, bribable dictatorship to the chaos of warlordism, people smuggling and slavery that it is today. I'll conclude with an edited quote from the very end of that Schwartz and Lane essay, which I once again urge you to read. These are their closing words. Quote, A more restrained and even pedestrian self-image might allow the United States at long last to pursue a more tolerant relationship with a recalcitrant world. It will eschew the theory of a global and universal duty, which not only commits it 
to unending wars of intervention, but intoxicates its thinking with the illusion that it is a crusader for righteousness. The policies that Washington has pursued toward Moscow and Kiev, often under the banner of righteousness and duty, have created conditions that make the risk of nuclear war between the United States and Russia greater than it has ever been. Far from making the world safer by setting it in order, we have made it all the more dangerous. End quote. I mentioned there that Russia is politically primitive. So it is. Vladimir Putin's in his 24th year as president, counting Medvedev as just his glove puppet. That's twice as long as FDR. And it's hard to see anything preventing Putin from attaining president for life, if that's what he wants. There is no organised opposition, no guarantee of orderly succession, and political liberties are stifled. You could ask Alexei Navalny about that. Corruption is at sensational levels. Transparency International ranks Russia at number 137 out of 180 nations, tied with Paraguay and Mali. The USA is ranked at number 24. The rule of law is of the mercy of oligarchs and power players. And so on. Politically, Russia is not a modern Western country. Two weeks ago, following the attempted coup, if that's what it was, by Prigozhin and his militia, I had a longish segment mulling over Russia's condition and prospects. That brought me a couple of angry emails. I had forgotten that there are, out here on the dissident right, there are people who are so disgusted by the degradations of our own cultural revolution, our open borders, the yielding up of our cities to muggers, shoplifters and homeless lunatics, the sexual mutilation of children, the abandonment of academic, professional and criminological standards in the name of equity, and all the rest of the current madness, a lot of people are so repulsed by it all, they have turned to Vladimir Putin as the fearless upholder of Western civilization. I share their repulsion at all those horrors, but... Sorry, I can't see Putin's Russia as any kind of attractive alternative. Nor can any of the hundreds of thousands of third world people paying out their life savings to people smugglers in hopes of improving their circumstances. So far as I'm aware, Russia is not being overwhelmed by illegal aliens. Google the phrase... Revealed preference. I wouldn't dismiss my emailers out of hand, though. 
Russia's society is sick, for sure. But so are our societies, the societies of the liberal, democratic West. They are different kinds of sickness. Theirs is political, ours is cultural. It's not crazy, though, to prefer the one kind of sickness to the other. Back in 1941, when Chiang Kai-shek's China was at war with Japan, there was a widespread suspicion that Jiang was not fighting the Japanese wholeheartedly. He was holding back his troops, the, the suspicion went, in confidence that the USA would beat Japan and that he would then, then be able to unleash his men against Mao Zedong's communists. According to American historian Theodore White, Jiang excused this policy by saying, quote, The Japanese are a disease of the skin. The communists are a disease of the heart. End quote. Something similar can be argued here. On the one side, there is autocracy, corruption, lawlessness, a president for life, and the assassination of political opponents. On the other, drag queen story hour and the sanctification of black lowlifes like George Floyd and Armored Arbery. Is one of these a disease of the skin, the other a disease of the heart? If so, which is which? Or are they both diseases of the skin, or both of the heart? Reporting on immigration issues, I tried to find glimmers of light in the darkness. Signs, however small, that the worm is turning, that ordinary citizens in Western countries are rising up against the open borders madness are waking up to the demographic destruction of their nations. It's not easy, but I try my best. In that spirit, here is a cheering story from across the pond, actually from Wales. We don't say much about Wales here at vdare.com. They are a quiet people. Well, except when they're singing and they keep mostly to themselves. The Welsh really should, however, be more alert than the average ethne to the dangers of uncontrolled mass immigration. They weren't always confined to that mountainous little western fragment of Great Britain. Prior to the first century AD, they owned all the southern part of the island. Then the Romans showed up and made Britain part of their empire. But the native British seem not to have been heavily Latinized. When, 400 years later, the Romans left, the Brits went back to being just British and speaking their own ancestral language, Brythonic. Without the Roman legions to protect them, though, 
The Brits suffered from raiding by the wild Scots, who lived in Ireland, and by the Picts, who lived in Scotland. To help fend off these assaults, the Brits hired in fighting men from Europe. Angles from what is today Denmark, and Saxons from what is now northern Germany. Regions that had never been Romanized. So these rough, warlike young men from a lower level of civilization found themselves in what had recently been a Roman colony with all mod cons, filled with people who knew how to dress with style but had forgotten how to fight. The Angles and Saxons looked around at the lush fields and pastures, the brick-built houses and bridges, the paved Roman roads, the well-groomed, delicate women, and said to each other, Hey! Then they sent messengers back to their places of origin to spread the good news. The inevitable followed. Within a hundred years, the Angles and Saxons owned what is today England. The native Brits had been driven off to the mountains of the West, along with their Brythonic language which over the centuries evolved into today's Welsh. So, as I said, you'd expect the Welsh to be particularly sceptical about the benefits of mass immigration. Here, in this week's news, is a little tiny sliver of evidence that maybe they are. The venue for this story is Llanethli, a small town in southern Wales, population 26,000. Llanethly has a fine old Edwardian hotel, the Strady Park Hotel. The owners of the hotel cut a deal with the UK government. In return, presumably for some large sum of taxpayers' money that hasn't been made known to the public, the hotel's owners gave notice to leave to all occupants, took no further bookings, fired all of its staff, 50 full-time workers and another 45 part-time, and hired in some security men to look after the place while necessary changes were made. What was the point of all this? Well, you probably know that people smugglers, with the aid of the French authorities, are shipping illegal aliens, oh sorry, I mean asylum seekers, north across the Channel to England, at the rate, in good weather, of many hundreds per day. The total for last year was nearly 46,000, getting on for twice the population of Llanethly. As is the case here in the States, there is a problem of where to put them all. For a while, it looked as though the British government might take up my suggestion of hulks, like the 19th century prison hulks, 
old unseaworthy ships moored offshore. This is proving to be a bust, however. There have been protests from both right and left. Local people have protested that the hulks are unsightly, which they certainly are, and that the wetbacks, oh, sorry, sorry, the asylum seekers, would be free to come and go, bringing mischief and crime to local towns. Social justice agitators, meanwhile, have criticised the hulks as inhumane. So, what to do? Where to put this year's inflow of 40, 50, 60,000 invaders? Oh, sorry, sorry, asylum seekers. Well, how about a nice four-star hotel like, uh, oh, the Strady Park in Llanethly? That's what the deal with the owners was about. The hotel expels its guests, cancels all wedding fixtures and such, fires all its workers, replacing them with a skeleton staff of ex-military security men, refits itself in a less luxurious style and brings in 241 Albanian gangsters. Oh, sorry, sorry again. I mean, asylum seekers. The new guests were supposed to be moved in July 3rd. When word of the deal got around, though, local people rose up in protest. So far, they have been able to prevent the foreign scofflaws, oh, you know what I mean, from being moved in. Latest news I have is that the protesters are holding steady, although not without some sad flashes of pathological altruism. Quote from one protester. I'm not a racist. I feel some sympathy with asylum seekers, but the best hotel for miles around is not the place for them. End quote. I can't help but wonder whether, back in AD 400 and something, whether there were Brits near the Channel shore, watching boatloads of tough young military-age males arriving from Anglia and Saxony, the Brits murmuring to each other, I'm not a racist, but... How will it all work out at last? Let's just hope it works out better for Brits than that previous open borders policy 1,600 years ago. That's as much good news as I can squeeze out of the immigration stories this week. The rest is bad. Here are two samples. The worse of the two, although I'm sorry to say the less surprising, is that Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives have shafted working and middle-class Americans yet again. It's what they live for, I think. The Department of Homeland Security, the DHS, of course needs to have its operations funded for the coming fiscal year. 
the one that starts on October 1st. And it is up to Congress to approve that funding. The House Appropriations Committee, 34 Republicans and 27 Democrats, duly did so before the July 4th recess. They budgeted $91.5 billion to fund DHS the next fiscal year. That, however, was only part of the bill that they passed. In there, along with the funding, the committee, with its Republican majority of seven, remember, also authorised major changes to the system of working visas for foreigners. The H-2A visa, for example, which is intended to let farmers import agricultural labour, gets expanded so that the jobs for those labourers no longer have to be seasonal or temporary. Similarly with the H-2B visa, the non-agricultural equivalent of the H-2A notoriously used by American employers as a source of cheap blue-collar labour. This latest bill expands the number of H-2B visas with at least 200,000 additional foreign workers joining our labour market on H-2B visas. It's not clear why these expansions were included in the bill. Even the Heritage Foundation, which generally sides with the Uni Party on immigration issues, even they sniffed at them. Quote, Such substantive changes to legal immigration programmes should be debated and voted on in the authorising committees, not snuck into an appropriations bill. End quote. My second bit of bad news comes from abroad. In fact, from a broad named Georgia Maloney, also known to Radio Derb listeners as Georgia Pippolina. Ms Maloney is Prime Minister of Italy, having been elected to that office last September on a platform of, among other things, immigration restriction. Svani ogni speranza. Vanish all hope. This week we learned that Ms Maloney will raise the number of work visas granted to applicants from outside the EU. Before the Covid pandemic, the number was 31,000 a year. The Prime Minister plans to raise it to 165,000 in 2025. Yes, it's a fix on legal immigration, like the one that House Republicans approved. Ms Pippolina, I'm sorry, uh, Prime Minister Maloney remains stalwart on illegals, badgering the EU to bribe North African countries to curtail people smuggling. You know, the way they used to bribe Colonel Gaddafi before NATO punched his ticket.
That's less impressive than it would be if the lady was prime minister of some other country. Italy, like France and Greece, is a pass-through country for illegals who mostly want to get to those lush welfare states further north. Britain, Germany, Scandinavia. Still, it's not nothing. I'm sorry Ms Maloney had to blot her immigration record with an assault on the wages of working-class Italians. Perhaps she's been taking lessons from our own congressional Republicans. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Those of us favouring patriotic immigration reform look up to Japan as a model. So far as I can discover, there is no illegal immigration at all into Japan. There are some refugees accepted for settlement. 202 last year. That's less than 2% of the 10,195 people who applied. And that was last year. In June this year, Japan's parliament tightened up the asylum laws further. Now, applicants who are denied refugee status twice will be forcibly deported. Be still, my heart. However, While Japan's immigration law is a model for us all, that country is not totally immune to the idiotic fads afflicting Western societies. Until this week, for example, an employer could prohibit men from using the ladies' bathroom. Then, on Tuesday, the country's Supreme Court ruled such restrictions unlawful. The plaintiff in the case being ruled on is a 50-something man, an employee at the Government Economic Ministry, who presents himself as a woman. If you want to legally change sex in Japan, you first have to undergo the necessary surgery. This fellow can't, for health reasons. So... He is legally male. He filed to have the bathroom restriction lifted 10 years ago, back in 2013. He filed suit in 2015, eight years ago. That's a heck of a long time to wait to use the bathroom. Sorry, sorry, bad taste, I know. Item. In the same general zone, a man presenting as a woman has won the Miss Netherlands title in a beauty pageant. Having scrutinised numerous pictures of the contestants, nothing is too much trouble for your diligent host, I have to say, in all honest objectivity, this was a case of pandering to a silly fad. There is no way the winner is as beautiful as the runner-up. Yeah, yeah, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. 
I don't nurse any strong prejudices in this area, though. I have written very sympathetically about Jan Morris, and I really am straining for objectivity. The winner there is not beautiful at all, by any standard known to me. But that's the way with fads. They can, when they're sufficiently entrenched, triumph over reality. Item. A fair amount of what you need to know about crime and order in our society is embraced by the story of the Pittsburgh Synagogue Killer. His name is Robert Bowers, a white guy aged 50. Back in October 2018, Bowers drove to a Pittsburgh synagogue where a service was underway and walked through the building shooting worshippers. Eleven people died, six others were wounded. There isn't the faintest shadow of doubt that Bowers committed this horrible crime. He was at the scene when police arrived, and he shot at them. They shot back, wounding him before arresting him. Survivors of the massacre identified him. He'd been posting anti-Semitic comments on social media. This was the guilty party, no doubt whatsoever. Bowers was found guilty in a federal trial last month, June 16th, almost five years after the event. Why did it take five years to find him guilty when his guilt could not have been more obvious? And why a federal trial when murder is against the law in Pennsylvania? I don't know. The answer to the first question is somewhere in the 650 words under the headings Indictment and Pre-Trial Proceedings and Trial in the Wikipedia page on the case. I gave it my best shot, but my eyes kept glazing over. I suspect the answer to the second question is that anything sufficiently newsy is the business of the federal government nowadays. Gotta keep all those Washington, D.C. bureaucrats employed somehow. Oh, and we're not yet through with the federal trial. Next week comes part two of the sentencing phase. Two, quote from the New York Times, January 13th, to determine whether to recommend that the judge impose a sentence of death or life in prison, end quote. We all know, of course, that should his honour impose a death sentence, there will be a decade or two or three of further legal wrangling before the sentence is carried out, if it ever is. And all this is just the federal proceedings. Then will come the state trial, which is being held in abeyance until the federal trial is over. Presumably, the state trial will be just as lengthy and convoluted. All this 
In a case where the defendant's guilt is known and has been known from the start, as well as any fact about the world can be known. That's our justice system for you. A vast jobs programme for lawyers and court officials, and a gross, jeering insult to anyone seeking, you know, justice. Item. Featured heavily in the British news outlets this past few days has been the Wimbledon tennis tournament. I'm not a follower of tennis and have no interest in the tournament itself. I just wish I could understand why so many literate, well-educated Americans think that the word Wimbledon is spelt with a T. No, it's a D, same as London. I never hear anyone say London. Why do so many say Wimbledon? Am I being petty? So sue me. Then practice saying Wimbledon. Wimbledon, Wimbledon, Wimbledon. That's it, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention. And Bruce Lee fans, pause to observe a minute's silence this coming Thursday, July 20th, the 50th anniversary of Bruce's death. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Here's Gracie to sing us out. <laughs> 